Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, talking money and wealth with Heritage Financial, the podcast that digs into the topics, strategies, and behaviors that help busy and successful people build and protect their personal wealth. I'm your host, Sammy Azuz, the president and CEO of Heritage Financial, a Boston-based wealth management firm working with high net worth families across the country for longer than 25 years. Now let's talk about the wealthy behaviors that are key to a rich life. Welcome to the December Investment Edition of the Wealthy Behavior Podcast, where I talk to our Chief Investment Officer, Bob Weiss, about what's going on in the markets and the investment universe that you need to know right now. So, Bob, markets have been pretty happy, I would say. The month of November was really good for stocks, as you know. I think it turned out to be one of the best months in history, and bonds performed well as yields back down. So people looking at their portfolios now are probably seeing a little bit of a higher return than they might have expected if they had only checked it, you know, a couple months ago. Anything that you've noticed outside of the the yields coming down, which helped the bond market and may have helped stocks that kind of drove this November rally? Yeah, I think the the headline um, that, that summarizes it well is November was the best month for a 60-40, 60, 60 stock, 40 bond portfolio uh, since 1991. And that's if the 60 is measured by the MSCI All Country World Index, so global stocks. Uh, U.S. stocks did well, global stocks did well. Um, and I, I think it gets summarized in it's not good or bad, it's better or worse, kind of a theme that we've had along the course of this year, and things are getting better. Um, so that's what propelled the rally uh, for the most part. And by that, it was good inflation data. So the PCE, which is the Fed's preferred measure for inflation, came in at the, the headline number, so all-inclusive, 3% over the last 12 months, and for the month of October, 0%, so no inflation in the month of October. And the, the core PCE, which uh, excludes food and energy, which are more volatile, as we've talked about oil prices going up, and then oil came down uh, 3.5% over the last 12 months, so a good number and it's trending in the right direction. We did have a, a point um, around the summer where inflation got a little sticky and we had this nice downward trajectory from peaking at nine and then we got stuck in the three to four percent range. And um, just to reference the CPI numbers, also zero for October and 3.2% year over year. So on the whole, these were better than expected and seeing that inflation is slowing and putting a zero in the report for October means well for future reports because they, they typically look at trailing 12 months and, and having a zero in there is gonna gonna help future readings as well. So that that was the main part. A second maybe observation, something we talked about with treasury issuance, how the Fed, excuse me, the Treasury had a lot of um treasury issue and it it, it may, reports were that the issuance was pushing up yields. And that's what people call market technicals. So treasury yields were moving, not in fundamentals. Fundamentals are what an economist or an investment professional would sit down with a calculator and say, what should this instrument yield? But technicals are more, I don't care what you think it should yield. We're issuing $100 billion today and there's not enough buyers. So the price goes up or the yield goes up, excuse me. And um, disruptions due to market technicals can re resolve themselves quickly uh, because it's more of an anomaly. It's something that's not fundamentally supported by definition. And I think we saw some of that as well, that yields were in fact higher due to the issuance, due to the technicals, and that got resolved. So we saw a, a pretty big decline in uh, treasury yields as, as the 10-year treasury now is down to about four and a quarter, and it was 5% just uh, about 45 days ago. 
So we had a guest on in the September 21st Wealthy Behavior podcast, a primer on mortgage-backed securities, a portfolio manager from DoubleLine who talked about the expectation that he was seeing that yields would back down after Thanksgiving as I think it was Silicon Valley Bank maybe was unwinding parts of their bond portfolio. Is that, am I remembering that correctly, Bob? Yeah, you're right. He, he made the call that rates would be lower around Thanksgiving. And, you know, the market never issues a memo saying exactly why. Uh, so in the face of it, we, I think we could say he, he got the call right. Now, was his reasoning from Silicon Valley Bank's liquidation running out versus other macro factors? What, what drove it? Not sure. Maybe both. Uh, but yeah, he, he made the, the call that rates would be lower and uh, yeah, mortgage rates are down to about 7% now and they, they peaked around 8 So you said that the uh, impetus uh, may have been good inflation numbers because, you know, good inflation allows the Fed to, you know, either not hike or maybe at some point in the future uh, cut. And we had been worried about uh, sticky inflation uh, a couple of months ago, or at least the market uh, was. Where are your thoughts now on a recession for next year? Yeah, so to put a little more on that, uh, with, with you, know, you can make forecasts, look into a crystal ball, or you can look at market data. And looking at market data is what we prefer to do. So looking at Fed fund futures implied rates in 2024, there's been a, a big change. So this is what like market participants are making investments, putting money on where they think rates will be. And so we look at that and, and say that that's what the market's expe- expecting. And it's it's shifted pretty dramatically over the last month um, so that now rate increases are not pressed in at all. So the, the market is saying the Fed is done raising rates and the amount of cuts has been increasing so that now we're at about, by the end of 2024, the futures implied Fed funds rate is about 1.3% lower than current levels. So the, the the base case that the market is telling us is there will be five rate cuts next year. And Powell has, Chairman Powell has been seeing this and has been making state, made a statement, I think um, on Friday, reiterating the, the more hawkish tone that, you know, we're looking at inflation, core uh, PCE is three and a half percent. That's not two. We're not there yet. Hikes are still on the table. So he's definitely not talking about the pivot or telling markets you're right. So that there's a little bit of kind of headbutting from what the Fed is saying and what the market's pricing, which which is common. But um, so the, the question of recession, when you look at the market and the market's saying the Fed's going to cut over one percent next year, well, why would they do that? They That's probably the market pricing in rate cuts due to a recession. Now, where it gets a little complicated is you could say, okay, let's say the market's right and call it a, about a one and a quarter rate cut is priced in next year. It's, it's, it's not, the, the way it works is not saying there's a 100% chance that they're going to cut by 1.25% next year. It could be, to, to keep the math simple, a 50% chance that they do nothing next year and a 50% chance that they cut by 2.5% next year. And that gets you to a weighted average probability of one, one and a quarter rate cut next year. Um, and with the Fed funds rate at the five and a quarter to five and a half range, there's a lot of room for them to cut. So the market is pricing in um, some you know chance of rate cuts next year, but how it, it exactly weighs out, you know, no one knows. 
um, other than I would just acknowledge that, 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 that there is, uh, you know, as there always is, um, meaningful risk in markets. And, you know, we should be aware that, you know, recession could be in the cards next year, but probably not a base case. I wouldn't go that far. Because of how you walked us through the probabilities? Correct. Yeah. So back to Powell for a second. Do you think that he is, because we, we saw this tug of war before where Powell had talked about, we're going to do this. And I think at that point it was, you know, rate hikes and pretty aggressive rate hikes. We're going to be extremely hawkish. We don't care if we break things along the way. And a lot of market participants seem to doubt the sincerity of that. Do you think that's going on now? Or do you think Powell's doing something which we've also seen where it's just trying to verbally slow things down, whether or not he, he actually means that he thinks hikes are still on the table? We don't know. Yeah, I think it's more the latter. He's verbally trying to slow things down, and I wouldn't be surprised if we see more of that. He wants to be in control, and there might be a little bit of a, a feeling of he, he wants to be in control, and he, he doesn't want to surprise markets. And when the markets get too far away from where he wants to be, then you're setting up, you know, he set himself up for a surprise. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see future hawkish rhetoric from him to try and get markets more in line with where he wants it to be and you know in, in defense of in, in his defense we're not there yet so right. but markets are forward looking so that, that that is part of the challenge where the fed's looking at you know trailing data that's coming in on inflation and the market's kind of looking six months out i have felt the same way that y you did or or at least was thinking along the same lines you were when i was seeing all these um all this commentary about you know rate cuts next year rates backing down next year and if there's no recession, why would you know rates be coming down? Why would they cut rates? Is it that clear cut, or are there other reasons that they may cut uh, if maybe certain segments of the economy aren't doing as well, like housing, but we're not in a technical definition of a recession? Yeah, definitely. They, they, I mean, the, the the real soft landing would be they probably do cut rates a little bit, uh, and just to keep economic growth so that they see signs that the economy is slowing, but it's not in recession. They cut rates by one or 2% and it's enough to keep you know a healthy labor market. So th that's definitely a possibility that that's really threading the needle, you could say. Uh, but th there's th those, the spectrum of different outcomes from you know, the, the, so the perfect soft landing where they get rates probably down to a more normal, like two or 3% Fed funds level where they'd like them to be. Uh, versus uh, the recession and there's ever in between. So what do you see in the bond market now, Bob, besides those rate expectations? Uh, yields have backed down. It was a strong recovery for fixed income. What are you thinking about now when it comes to bonds? Yeah, overall, they're still attractive is our view. We're still seeing yields in the, the, the fours in treasuries and uh, spread assets higher, long-term munis look attractive. So we have been increasing bonds uh, and still probably will be increasing a little bit more. So it, it's still an attractive bond market. I think there's um, room to go. We, we had one good month, but you know, it, when you look at trailing returns, uh, you know, year to date, we, we were negative a month ago. So it, it's I think there's uh, definitely more room for yields to fall in bonds over the next one, two, three years. It's a good setup for investors to be in bonds. 
So the S&P recently made, I think it's high for the year, still a little bit below its uh, former peak. What are you seeing in the international markets? Yeah, international markets are participating and their valuations are more attractive. And also part, uh, performance is more balanced, you could say, in the U.S. market. Um, a lot of the performance has come from the new na name, I think is the Magnificent Seven, like seven big tech stocks that are that are up huge amounts here today and everything else is about flat. Whereas in international markets, you see much broader participation where like the median stock overseas is doing better than the, the median stock in the US. So we're, we're seeing healthy returns overseas uh, as well. So developed international has been doing better than emerging markets, but uh, seeing good participation uh, across regions. But just to read off some numbers, looking at the last one month, um, US was up 8.9%, World XUS up 8.6%, and emerging markets up 7.4%. So very healthy one month returns across the board. So getting back to rates for a second, Bob, I don't, we don't make rate projections in our, you know, investment process, but you're aware of rates and they factor in somehow. Can you explain maybe to individual investors how interest rates and uh, interest rate outlook matters to a chief investment officer? Sure. So when we build portfolios, we use uh, what we call capital market assumptions uh, that are long-term in nature. So uh, really 10-year return forecasts. And when you calculate the expected returns at the asset class level for bonds, the, the, the uh, most accurate way to do it in looking at history is it's, it's actually pretty simple. Well, big secret here. Uh, you look at the current yield. And if the yield's maturity on a 10-year treasury is 4%, well, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to get a 4% return on that instrument over the next 10 years. Stocks are a lot more complicated because they don't mature the way a bond does. And there's uh, multiple expansion and contraction. So an index could trade at 20 times earnings today. And in 10 years, it could trade at 15 or 25 times earnings. And that would make a big difference in the future outcome. Uh, and then you also have earnings growth. Uh, so there's uh, more variables, more uncertainty in the stock market. Uh, but for bonds, we, we basically look at the, the yield for intermediate term bonds. And um, you know, right now, the, the yields are pretty attractive about... Um, you know, it, near the highest level we've seen in the last 15 plus years. So uh, on the face of it, those look good. And then in comparison, when you look at stocks, valuations are about average over the, that period. So you have, say, over the last 15 years, bond yields are the highest, whereas stock valuations are average. So this is called relative valuation. You're comparing the valuations of bonds, the valuations of stocks, and that kind of tilts the scale a little bit towards bonds because uh, they're really attractive compared to history and and stocks are you know just okay um so that 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 that's some high level uh, perspective on, on how we think about these things awesome thank you and something maybe more actionable to the folks who have been sitting in cash or you know two year treasuries or short term cd's or high yield money markets how does all that we've talked about, particularly around rates and expectations for next year and the fact that rates have backed down already, how does that impact those folks and what should they do? 
Yeah. So I mean, just for example, in uh, this is the last one month in the month of November, the, the Bloomberg U.S. aggregate bond index was up about four and a half percent in a month. So that's and that, that index is mostly treasuries and government agency mortgages like Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac and investment grade corporate bonds. It's high quality intermediate term bonds. It's up four and a half percent in a month. Even bonds can move in a big way. And the studies do show that when you when you have Fed rate hiking cycles and you have peak rates, it, it, it is a bit of a cash trap where you, you see, oh, I can get five and a quarter on a money market or in T-bills. Why would I do anything else when I can just sit back and, you know, the the, the slang now is T-bill and chill. Just just get the T-bills at five and a quarter and do nothing. And that that's great. Don't be greedy. Uh, but what history shows is most of the time you, you'll do much better buying on the more conservative end, bonds, intermediate term bonds, where you get price appreciation as, as rates normalize and decline, or stocks, which have a long history of outperforming cash. It, it's not common for cash to do better than stocks. So I, I'd use cash appropriately. And if you have you know, big expenses coming up in, the, in the, the near term horizon, call it 12 months or less, cash is appropriate. But if it's long term money, multi generational money, it probably should not be stockpiled in cash. Uh, like there's a spectrum of risk, and start with investment grade bonds, but also look to stocks because uh, you know history shows us that um, you know the odds are definitely in favor of of bonds and stocks outperforming cash. Do you expect money market yields to back down soon? Yes, that and that's that's priced into markets with um, that kind of goes hand in hand with seeing peak rates now soon, not next month, but in the next six to 12 months. Yes. And, and that's where when that starts to happen, then people will look around. And if, if the money market isn't yielding five and a quarter, it's yielding three, then, oh, okay, you know, this isn't as exciting anymore. What else is out there? At that point, uh, the, the values that we're seeing now won't be on the table. Got it. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And it's something we've touched on in in prior episodes, for sure. Anything else on your mind, Bob, about the investment universe you want folks to know about? Maybe like a quick portfolio update. Something we've been uh, busy doing is tax loss harvesting. Mm -hmm. I don't think we've talked about that on this podcast, and we, we do get some questions from clients about it. So I, I thought uh, maybe we touch on it today. If yeah, go for it. Yeah. So what we do is we come through every holding and in, in every account and look at positions that are at a loss for the year. And if positions are at a, a meaningful enough loss, we'll sell the security to in a taxable account to book the loss to help the client with their taxes. So um, in bonds, we, we, we have thresholds. So uh, for example, we might look at something like the loss needs to be at least 3% and $5,000 in stocks so, because stocks have more volatility a higher threshold, something like a 10% loss and also $5,000. And uh, we'll sell the security. You have to be out of it for 30 days to avoid the IRS wash sale rule. And then our intent is to get back into the position. And this helps clients out with their taxes so that we, we book losses that can offset other activity, whether it's in their portfolio or in their life, if they're you know, doing real estate deals or selling a business or have gains from their portfolio from other positions. Um, and sometimes we get questions from clients looking at positions and saying, why didn't you sell this position? You know, I have a $3,000 loss there. 
And if it's to use an example, like an emerging market fund that um, might be down, if it's say it's a hundred thousand dollar position, it's down three percent and three thousand dollars. We ordinarily would not sell that for a tax loss. And you know the conversation goes, why not? That's a three thousand dollar loss. I could use that. The issue is, you know, tax loss harvesting is not a free lunch. You do get the loss and you get to use it to offset gains, but the the risk in lies in the conduit. So if you sell the position and you take that $3,000, 3% loss, you buy something else. Well, in November, emerging markets were up 7%. So now you're kind of backup funds, your plan B fund you own, and it has a 7% short-term gain. What do you do? We ordinarily would want to sell it and get back into our preferred fund. But if you do that, you just incurred a 7% short-term gain in exchange for a 3% loss. That doesn't make sense. So um, that risk of it, of the market going up and causing a, a, a adverse tax, um, you know, action on the reversal is one of the things we look at. There's also transaction fees and also slippage from being in a different vehicle for a month. So different things we weigh, but uh, we go through portfolios very diligently to help our clients where we can by taking losses for the year. And that was done, yeah, usually early December, but it's also an ongoing thing, right? It can be done during the course of the year. It's not necessarily a year-end strategy. Yeah, definitely through the course of the year. Uh, we did it a few weeks ago for most clients, and um, that was kind of a combination of getting near year-end, but also that was near the bottom um, in bonds in particular, um, bond, bottom in price or peak in yields. So uh, we, we started to see some losses of the three to four percent range and and took those. So it is it's both time and price driven and, and we'll look again over the course of the year. So it's not just like a, a one time thing. Um, but yeah, that's tax loss harvesting in a nutshell. Right. Thanks for that overview. Uh, something that I wanted to touch on briefly was the sad news we got last week that Charlie Munger passed away. And I would encourage you to learn more about him and, and read some of what he's written and some of what's been written about him. But, a, you know, a brief overview, he's, he died at 99. He was the vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway. Fascinating life. He was a magna cum laude at Harvard Law without a college degree. He had joined the armed forces at the age of 19 in 1943 for obvious reasons. He ended up practicing law, was a partner in a law firm, did a lot of real estate development and had his own investment partnership. Uh, in the 60s and 70s, but he's best known for his long-term partnership with Warren Buffett and getting Buffett to expand his investment approach to not just buying dirt cheap companies, but great companies at a good price. But to me, he's so much more than an investor that you can learn from. His role model was Ben Franklin, and he talked a lot about the value of lifelong learning, reading across all disciplines. So, you know, guys like you and me don't just read investment stuff, biology, psychology, chemistry, physics, read the source material, read biographies about those people, just constant lifelong learning through uh, multiple disciplines, build checklists to use that knowledge. And um, he also, uh, first I've heard of it, I'm, I'm sure he didn't create it, but this concept of inverting, which is turning a problem upside down and thinking about how not to do something can help you unlock how to actually do it. So, um, you know, I mentioned you should read about him, read some of what he's written, uh, some suggestions or recommendations. Poor Charlie's Almanac is a book that he compiled. Uh, it's phenomenal. It's expensive, uh, but it's it's great. Charlie Munger, The Complete Investor by Trent Griffin, and then Damn Right, Behind the Scenes with Berkshire Hathaway, Billionaire, Charlie Munger by Janet Lowe are three places you can get a head start.
Thank you, Bob. Um, and thank you for another great conversation uh, about the investment universe right now. It's always good to talk after a nice uh, month in the markets. Hopefully things uh, stay at this pace. But if they don't, we will explain why and what you should be doing about it. So thanks again, Bob. Thanks, Amy. Save the date for our annual Market Outlook webinar, where we'll share expectations for stock and bond markets in 2024. It'll take place live on Wednesday, January 17th at 12 p.m. Eastern. Have a question you want an answer to? Submit it during registration or ask it live during the webinar. A registration link is available in this episode's show notes and on the event page of our website, www.heritagefinancial.net. Can't make it? Register anyway, and we'll share the recording once available. Listening to this episode after the fact? You can find a recording of the webinar on our website. Thank you for listening to Wealthy Behavior. If you found the conversation useful, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share this episode so those around you can live a rich life too. We appreciate your feedback and questions. Please email us at wealthybehavior@heritagefinancial.net. For more insights, subscribe to our weekly blog at heritagefinancial.net and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out my personal finance blog at thebostonadvisor.com. Wealthy Behavior is produced by Kristen Kastner and Michelle Kakinis. This educational podcast is brought to you by Heritage Financial Services, LLC, located in the greater Boston area. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast or that of the speaker are subject to change and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment or strategy discussed will be successful or will achieve any particular level of results. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal.